Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jen Williams, here as always with my co-host, Zach Beecham. Hey! And we're also lucky to have Alex Ward, Vox's defense and national security reporter, here with us again this week. Hello! So today we're going to be talking about President Trump and America's forever wars. Trump campaigned on an America First agenda, promising to keep the United States out of costly foreign wars and to use that money to rebuild the U.S. instead. But since becoming president, Trump has ramped up U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, and beyond. So why is that? Well, here's what President Trump himself had to say about this back in August when he announced his decision to continue fighting the war in Afghanistan, a war we've now been fighting for over 16 years and which Trump had previously described on numerous occasions as a waste of lives and money. My original instinct was to pull out and historically... I like following my instincts, but all my life, I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. So what's going on here? Why did the America First candidate suddenly change his tune as soon as he got into the White House? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And Alex, just to get us started here, remind us what exactly Trump has done when it comes to U.S. military operations abroad since becoming president. Sure. So there's a lot we could talk about. He's done quite a bit more than he argued that he would during the campaign. But let's just kind of focus on on the ones you've mentioned. So the the Afghanistan war started in October 2001. And when Trump came into office, there were about uh, 10,000 U.S. troops left there at the end of the Obama administration. He added 3,000 more um, in, in August. And now it looks like there's news that recently that the army is making plans to add a thousand more. Uh, Mattis, the secretary of defense, has yet to sign off on that plan. And frankly, the, the president has decided to uh, basically give a lot of that authority to the Department of Defense. So all this to say that it looks like Trump is escalating that that war further. If you're looking at Somalia, the U.S. presence is the biggest there since 1993. That was during the Black Hawk Down episode. Uh, We've doubled the amount of troops there. It's actually around 500 now. So it's not a substantial amount, but we've increased the amount of strikes. And that just correlates to the fact that we're trying to help out the government there uh, deal with a a terrorist insurgency insurgency, uh, called al-Shabaab. We had uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson announce that in Syria, we're not going to have an indefinite military presence there. And that was just this week, right? Like just this past week or last, last week? Last week, yeah, January, right. so January 17th. Uh, and the, there's two kind of reasons for that. They laid out one is to make sure ISIS stays down and two to push back against Iran's regional influence. And so a lot of this kind of goes against that whole America first narrative that Trump laid out when he was a candidate and even as president. Well, let's not sleep on the fact that Trump is the first American president to actually attack Syrian government installations intentionally, right? Like the bombing of the chemical weapons thing was a major escalation of the U.S. mission in Syria and one that he seemed to be opposed to during the campaign. Like it's not just that he has escalated various different wars against terrorist groups, though that's like – really a large part of it. And he did say he would bomb the shit out of ISIS. That's, of course, the famous quote. Right. It's that he is – put U.S. more troops in harm's way, actually, and expanded the scope of these operations in all sorts of different ways in different regions, right? This is just a much, much bigger thing than existed under Obama. Right. I mean, if you look at, you know, Obama was really, and 
he got a lot of grief for this, right? He was very kind of judicious and slow in making decisions to escalate troops, right? He had that like year-long review of Afghanistan before he decided to to do the surge again in Afghanistan. Um, with Syria, you know, he was pushed over and over to kind of support the Syrian opposition and he kind of hedged and held back and only did kind of sort of half measures. And then so you have Trump who's campaigning and saying, you know, these foreign wars are disastrous, right? He said specifically in Afghanistan, these wars are, you know, this war costs us so much money. It's ridiculous. We've spent uh, $6 trillion in the Middle East fighting other wars. We should be spending this money at home. And then he comes into office and he goes farther than Obama did, right? He just completely goes and says, okay, now we're going to have indeterminate length military presence in Syria when Obama was really hesitant to get involved in that civil war. Iraq, I guess, kind of makes sense, right? So in in some ways, like Trump did sort of fulfill that part of it in the sense that he said he would bomb the shit out of ISIS and get rid of them pretty quickly. That actually happened, whether or not that's to Trump's individual credit or, you know, broader issues is, is a different question. Um, but I guess kind of going back to the original question, like, why, right? Like, why has Trump decided to go against one of his core campaign issues? So, you know, even as we heard in that quote, like against his own instincts, like, is it just that he can't keep his promises? It, was he just bullshitting? Or is there something else going on? Well, part of it is the the sense that there's like deep forces in the U.S. government that support initiatives the U.S. is already doing, right? There's this is it concept, the deep state? It is not the deep state. Okay, just clarify. The deep state is not a real thing. There's this concept in political science called path dependence, which is that when you start down a particular road and start doing a certain set of things, you have to keep doing it. The costs escalate, interests get entrenched uh, inside the government to a point where people have a lot of resistance to you changing the policy. And that's what's happened with a lot of these American wars. There's really deep buy-in from the military into fighting in Afghanistan, into not admitting defeat. There's a deep sense that the U.S. needs to be involved in various different counterterrorism missions in different places, and that the right strategy is to continue doing what we've been doing to varying degrees and tweak it on the side, right? And overturning all of that requires overcoming entrenched interests inside the U.S. government. It requires fighting the bureaucracy and even some of Trump's top advisors on the impulses that, that they're bought into, and in part, telling the American public and specifically people who know or are family members of soldiers that right. their family members are dying for nothing. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of risk. And Trump is not the kind of organized political actor who can overcome a lot of that very well. He is quite haphazard, I would say, as a president. Right. I mean, it also kind of goes to the the sunken cost fallacy, right? Like, you know, you've already done all of this. You've sunken all of these costs in terms of actual dollars cost, but also lives lost. Um, you know, and telling, like you said, like telling the military, like, by the way, this whole war you've been fighting, we haven't really made any progress. Ah, we're just going to stop because it's not really working. Like Trump has said that. Like there are all these tweets from 2013 and, and beyond where he said, like, Afghanistan is is ridiculous. We should get out of there. This is like we're never going to win. Like the government in general has been fighting this war. But when you have a president who has said this war is unwinnable, we need to get out. And then he comes into office and says, oh, by the way, I'm sending more troops into this war that's unwinnable. Like that's stunning, right? Yeah. And I, and I do want to quickly just put a fine point on this. It, it may sound obvious, but I think it's important to point out when we use the term like the military believes it, that needs to be parsed out a little bit. Right. There there are tons of troops that I've talked to that are currently fighting and are out or who have fought in that war that completely believe that war is, is unwinnable, that they didn't like that they were deployed there, that they didn't 
necessarily think they they should have spent time away from their from their loved ones to fight. That said, they're not the decision makers. The decision makers who are totally up, up top, it's it's usually civilian politicians and then even some in uniform generals. There are four people with military experience who have changed Trump's mind on the Afghanistan thing. Two of them are currently in uniform. You've got uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joe Dunford, and then you've got the National Security Advisor, uh, McMaster, and you've got two former generals and Secretary of Defense Mattis and Chief of Staff John Kelly. All of them have experience in the Middle East and Afghanistan. And John Kelly's son died in right, Afghanistan. Right, John Kelly's son died in Afghanistan. Uh, McMaster thoroughly believed when he was there and gave interviews after he left that this was a winnable war. Mattis cared deeply about Afghanistan and, and, and the area when he was at CENTCOM. Um, so these are four men that argued that there was a necessary that it was necessary for the US to continue its presence in Afghanistan and spent months arguing with the president about why he should increase troops. Trump instinctively did not want to, as he mentioned even in that clip, but it doesn't matter. His mind was changed. Well, that, that's a really important point about the general way that Trump has approached a lot of foreign policy issues. Right. He delegates a lot of authority when it comes to military policy to generals. He Explicitly, them, he said yeah. he was going to do that on purpose, right? Yeah, he yeah. said that I'll leave it, our generals are smart, I'll leave it to them. I mean, he said that sometimes he said they're all idiots. It, right. It just but really depends on And reduced to rubble. Yeah, right. it's it's all very confused. But the way that it's come out is the president hasn't, in the way that Obama did, micromanaged military and foreign policy decisions. And the result is that when you stick the military in a conflict— the way that military training influences the way that people think is not to say, oh, yeah, let's just cut our overall losses and leave. It's that they think that when they're in a conflict, their goal is to win. They believe they can win and that they ought to. That's their task. It's up to – in the way – in military professional education, they're taught that the civilians make the decisions, Right, and they execute them, and their goal is to win, to fight and win and to accomplish their missions. Exactly. So when you put the military in charge of making military policy – uh, or figuring out whether or not to escalate in a conflict, they're always going to say, we need to keep fighting. We can win this. We know how. And so in a situation like Afghanistan, you're going to get an escalation. That's just what is going to happen. No, and, and then in, in, in April, you had Trump say, "I'm get, just to put a point on it, I gave total authorization to the military to do what it wants. And, and to Zach's point, you need civilian leadership, especially the president, to set the strategic direction and sort of the goals you're trying to achieve. But when you give that authority as explicitly as... Trump has to the military, then they're going to do exactly what Trump said, which is just go do the job, go win the war. I mean, you talk to some some army folks, and they'll explicitly say, "My job is to break things." That's not a strategic objective. That's just that's just taking an action. I totally agree. I think there's also an interesting kind of other side to this, though. When we get outside of Afghanistan, right? Obviously, there is a counterterrorism kind of aspect to Afghanistan, ostensibly, right? The the, the stated goal, at least, is to you know prevent terrorist safe havens from coming back and flourishing in Afghanistan and in the, the tribal territories between Afghanistan and Pakistan. But when you talk about Africa, right, we've also seen this kind of dramatic expansion. We saw it under Obama, right, the drone strikes and the supporting of uh, governments and militaries in countries throughout sub-Saharan Africa to fight this kind of growing what was once sort of al-Qaeda and then became kind of this ISIS presence. But you have more broadly, these kind of Islamist militancies kind of popping up. You have Boko Haram, you have Al-Shabaab, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but even under Trump, right, like we've seen this kind of escalation, um, like you said, in Somalia and beyond. We've seen, you know, increased drone strikes in Yemen, things like that. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, is, is part of that something to do with the kind of entire broader war on terror narrative, right? Because if there's one thing that Trump has said that he wants to do is to fight terrorism, right? Like, that's pretty clear. 
But at the same time, like that involves more intervention, right? Well, do you all remember that really ugly term from Israeli strategic doctrine about how Who they doesn't? approach wars to Hamas? Or, yes. or wars with Hamas? Yes. Mowing the grass. Mowing. Mowing the grass. Right? It's this idea that you need to continue killing people regularly in order to ensure that the terrorist groups, the weeds in this metaphor, this creepy dehumanizing metaphor, don't grow too high. Right. That quietly has become American terrorism doctrine. We are everywhere always continually bombing something, right? And quietly in a way that doesn't make the headlines, but there's the sense that we need to just regularly intervene in these places. And if we kill enough terrorists and build up indigenous military in capacities in various different places, that eventually they'll kill enough terrorists for the problem to go away and maybe we need to bomb again and the problem will be solved for a little bit. But then this new guy comes and he's scary and we need to kill him. And this right. just doesn't stop. It's a, it's a it's a doctrine of perpetual war. And in the Israeli context, it makes a little more sense because they're dealing with a hostile terrorist group on their border. But in the American context, this is a commitment to global, unending, perpetual war. Right. And I think it's you're right. And I think when you look at Africa in particular, right, like the idea of fighting terrorists to protect the U.S. homeland rationally, like that makes sense. Sure. Right. Like, absolutely. You know, I mean, the entire kind of conception of like terrorist safe havens. Well, you know, if they're using those safe havens to literally plan attacks on the United States, it in some ways makes sense to go after them, right? But when you're talking Boko Haram, when you're talking Al-Shabaab, you're not talking groups who are primarily interested in attacking the United States or even slightly interested, right? Al-Shabaab, perhaps maybe a little bit more than Boko Haram. But these are groups that are domestic insurgencies primarily. They're fighting local civil wars. They're fighting for control. They're not harboring these kind of international terrorist cabals who are plotting to attack the United States. I mean, maybe. They are affiliated with either al-Qaeda or ISIS right. in, in those two examples, right? It's not to right. say that they aren't. They certainly have demonstrated a degree of rhetorical and ideological anger at the United States that could eventually turn into a plot on the U.S. homeland. But you're right to say they don't they even demonstrated a capacity or even interest in doing that. Right. And so if you're mostly, you know, dealing with groups that are fighting domestic insurgencies, again, there's an argument to be made that it's still important to go in, which is what the United States is doing, to go in and help these local militaries, these local governments build up capacity. We send in advisors and trainers to kind of help them build up and develop their own capacity so that over the long run, we don't have to end up fighting a war then, right? That is a, a strategy that if you present that to the American people, if you present it to Congress and say, this is what we're doing, we can debate that, right? It's a rational, but I don't think, the problem is, I don't think there's any of that debate actually happening. More what we're seeing is just this, well, we're already doing it, so let's just keep doing it. And that's what I think is most surprising to me from the Trump administration, because he literally said, we're going to come in, we're going to stop doing this, you know, intervening and building up all these other countries. Now, if they sat down, his advisors, and said, hey, here's why we're doing this. This is why this makes sense. Here's why you should explain to the American people why you changed your mind, right? Like that would be valid. That would make sense. And that would be acceptable. But we don't see any of that. It's just, we're not talking about it. We're just escalating military all over the place. And it just seems like there's no explanation. There's no clear sense of strategy that's being expressed to either Congress, the American people, or I'm not even sure even to Trump. 
there's a wonky debate happening in Congress about the authorization for the use of military force. And we don't have to go too deep into that. But what, what's important to know is that this uh, these authorizations effectively allowed the George W. Bush administration to go in and fight uh, al-Qaeda after the 9-11 attacks. And that has that authorization has been used to justify America's wars against terrorists all over the world. Right. Uh, and so that kind of continues. And Congress now, interestingly, is pushing back on that whole kind of issue. They're asking for new authorization for new authorizations to do, but that requires some talks with um, DOD and state. Yeah, Cory Booker just wrote an op-ed the right. other day saying that, like this, you know, these wars are illegal. Like you need to come to Congress. We need to give you the authorization. You don't have this authorization. And but it seems that like uh, mostly Congress is just kind of still letting it happen, though. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. Let, let's be real here. It's well, not like is they're there, stopping it. Is there any chance of a bill like that passing Congress, one that would restrict U.S. authority to fight terrorism? There's, uh, there seems to be some movement for it. I don't know if it actually came up to a vote. What would happen? There's a question of whether that bill would actually restrict terrorism, or right. if it's just a new AUMF, right? If it's a new authorization in giving you these specific things, right? It could end up giving them more power. Who but knows? I, I guess my whole my whole point was, regardless of whether Congress would actually be able to pull that off, is that the Bush administration did not want to put more restrictions on its on its terrorism and counterterrorism efforts. The Obama administration didn't want that many restrictions on its counterterrorism efforts, and neither does Trump. Uh, and it allows the U.S. to continue around the world and fight terrorists wherever they may be. And that is also an easier sell administration-wise and in terms of Congress because you can go to your constituents or your, you know, whoever, who are your voters and say, we are killing terrorists and we're not spending money necessarily or large amounts of money on rebuilding these countries. Right. And I think that gets to the deeper point here. And, and the reason I'm so skeptical about any real push to restrain authority here, which is that since 9-11, the entire foreign policy apparatus of the United States, the entire political conversation surrounding foreign policy, and even the sort of pop cultural imaginary about what issues plague us have come to focus on terrorism as this major existential threat. Right. Right. It's this idea that nothing is more important than securing the homeland from another 9-11. And I get that immediately in the aftermath of a traumatic attack. Right. The it was attack a on the huge homeland. traumatic attack on the United, in the American psyche more generally. Right. But here we are, you know— over 16 years later, and we're in a situation where there's an increasingly assertive Russia and China, where the terrorist group that hit us on 9-11 has been reconfigured, where we've just dealt a devastating blow to ISIS in the Middle East, and our entire foreign policy apparatus is still obsessed with terrorism, even though the risks to the U.S. homeland are, are really minimal. Right, and I think that that you're right. And that goes to an interesting point, Alex, that you were making when we were talking about, um, you know, the planning for this for this show, which is, you know, the, a new national defense strategy just came out, right? The administration just released its new, what we call the NDS, right? Which is its kind of broader strategic vision for the future of, of U.S. war fighting, essentially. Right. And there was some kind of surprising stuff in there that uh, didn't get a lot of attention outside of the defense and national security community. But you want to talk about that? Yeah. So the thing that, that stuck out to me um, is that well, this is what Matt, Mattis is the one who delivered the address releasing this report. And this is his quote. He goes, great power competition, not terrorism, is now the primary focus of U.S. national security. I want to say up front, this is rhetoric, right? Even though it says in the report, this is rhetoric. The administration has shown no signs as of yet of prioritizing great power competition over counterterrorism. But that said, it is an important statement. Uh, so when he says great power conflict, just explain, just remind us what that means sure. in, in detail. Great power conflict effectively means that the U.S. Uh, will focus more on competing against 
big powers, big states. So China, Russia, right. um, even, even smaller countries that could pose a potential threat to the United States like North Korea. So in other words, focusing on terrorists, right, individuals is not as important necessarily as focusing on other countries. So what you're saying is like basically the, the national defense strategy essentially kind of is reconfiguring the way we think about the U.S. war fighting back to like an older version of, of wars, right? Like we used to fight those big wars. When you think about World War One, World War Two, the Cold War even, like it was this big, massive, great power, country against country, you know, generational struggle versus the kind of small counterterrorism driven, you know, pinpoint strikes here and there type kind of war fighting. Well, is that, do you think that's like realistic? Is that a reflection of where we're actually going? Is it just rhetoric? It depends what your priorities are. So, I mean, the, the, this kind of ideology stems from, uh, it's actually fairly mainstream, which is the end of the Cold War allowed the U.S. an unprecedented amount of space to focus more on smaller things like terrorism and, and nation building. And now we've reached a point where other countries, China and Russia in particular, and again, those are the two countries that the Trump administration really singled out in this strategy and also in a different one, that now they have come and are able to push their weight around the world and actually challenge the U.S. around in, in, its, in its areas. What's interesting here is like, I think it is true. I mean, China is building islands in the South China Sea. Russia is throwing its weight around in its own area and even online. There are reasons to worry about them, but I think there are also reasons to worry about terrorism. I agree with Zach completely that it's an overinflated threat, but it's kind of not an either or anymore. Sure. What you focus on, but this is clearly about prioritization. And for this administration, priority is making sure the U.S. has primacy, meaning military, economic, et cetera, power over these kinds of new growing countries. America first. This is all stupid. Not the Defense Department, but just the way that we talk about foreign policy as if there's only one of two possible states. One, the terrorists are big and scary. Two, Russia and China are big and scary and we're yeah. going to fight a war with them. It doesn't work that way. The real situation is that more people are killed by their own furniture than by terrorists domestically in the United States. The real situation is that Russia's economy is oil-driven, in freefall, and in shambles. In reality, China is plagued by internal problems, including dissent, including terrible environmental catastrophes. It's also constrained by American allies surrounding it. Like, we are in a situation where the United States remains by far the most dominant country in the world, where the world's at peace in a way that it hadn't been for literally centuries— and we're obsessed with being terrified about things being awful, when in reality, if what we do is focus on maintaining peace and not trying to start crazy competition and crazy wars, things will be fine. But that is not the way that the American foreign policy establishment thinks about things. There is always some kind of terrible threat, and it always needs to be dealt with with force. It's crazy. Well, okay, I take your point. However, I do think when we're talking about the national defense strategy, it's literally their job as the U.S. military to say, what are our defense priorities? That doesn't mean that they're about to go start a war with Russia or with China, right? It is literally their job to say, look around the world, identify the threats. They're not saying, like, we should now start a World War III and fight China and Russia, right? It's their actual job to say, identify the top threats. What are the biggest things we need to focus on? Because we do have a military. Right? Yeah, I'm just tired of the militarized way of thinking about the world being the dominant lens through which we discuss foreign policy and think about it, especially in a world where the military has started to assume more and more control 
over U.S. diplomacy, with the State Department being marginalized. Right. I think that's a fair and point. money being slashed. I think in this administration, when you have kind of the erosion of the traditional idea of soft power, right, like non-military kind of projection of power, cultural power, right, diplomatic power, things like that, you know, the shiny beacon on a hill of, of democracy and, you know, freedom, that being eroded and just having the United States be a military power solely, I agree. I think that gets us into really troubled territory. Want delicious food delivered from the best restaurants? Try Caviar. Caviar delivers good food, delicious food, healthy food to your door. It's so easy. You order online or in the app. Look at all the menus, choose from great local restaurants, find exactly what you're craving, and they bring it to you. Give Caviar a try and choose from the best restaurants. You pay no delivery fee on your first order. Plus, take $10 off your first order of $30 or more with the code WORLDLY. Offer valid until February 28, 2018. You know when you're too busy, you just can't cook. Order in with Caviar. Caviar is great at the office, too. Order for large groups easily. They can cater your next event. And you can order any meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and get it delivered. Be the office hero. Order coffee for your whole team and bagels. Be the home hero. Order a romantic date night dinner or feed the whole family. You can even track your delivery in the app right to your door. So give Caviar a try and pay no delivery fee on your first order. And remember, take $10 off your first order of $30 or more with the offer code WORLDLY. That's $10 off your first order of $30 or more with the offer code WORLDLY. When I have some downtime, I love to take that time to learn something new. As listeners of this show, I know you do too. That's why I want you to sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Get unlimited access to learn from some of the leading professors and experts in the world. Choose from over 8,500 fascinating lectures on the history of the Supreme Court, world economics, astronomy, even photography or how to play chess. You can stream or download videos to any device or listen podcast style through The Great Courses Plus app. One course I really enjoyed was Surveillance State, Big Data, Freedom, and You. It was a really interesting and super relevant course. Cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig explores the government's role in providing security from threats like digital espionage, hacking, while at the same time preserving our rights to privacy and freedom. I know you'll love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. And they're giving worldly listeners a free trial with unlimited access to their entire library. But you'll need to go to our special URL, greatcoursesplus.com worldly. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. So for Elsewhere this week, we're headed to Germany, where we just learned that a prominent member of Germany's far-right anti-Islam political party has converted to Islam and quit the party. So here's what members of that group normally sound like. Correct. Islam as a cultural and religious entity has no place in Germany. That's the voice of Alexander Gauland speaking through a translator. He is the national leader of the far-right Alternative for Germany, or AFD, party. And that's him explicitly stating the party's official stance that Islam has no place in Germany. Which is why it was so striking to learn this week that a prominent member of that party, a man named Arthur Wagner, 
has converted to Islam and stepped down from his leadership position on one of the state legislative committees. So, Zach, before we get into Wagner's decision to convert, why don't you tell us more about this party and what they actually represent? Yeah, well, AFD is not just a far-right party. It's the first far-right party since the Nazis to take control of a sizable number of seats in Germany's national parliament. It is arguably the most important far-right party on the European continent since last year, France's Front National suffered a really embarrassing electoral defeat uh, to President Emmanuel Macron. And AFD in September won a huge number of seats, 94, in Germany's parliamentary elections. Right. So this is a really prominent movement whose essential point, like really the sole reason for existing, is that they hate immigration. They and especially Muslim right, immigrants. Right, specifically Muslim immigrants, yeah. right? And the idea, right, is that the, their kind of broader argument is that this massive influx of, of refugees, of Muslim immigrants that Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, kind of allowed in as part of the kind of way to deal with this global refugee crisis that we saw, that that in and of itself is going to change German and specifically white Christian German culture in negative ways, right? So, Getting back to Wagner, so Wagner himself, right, was a member of this party, a prominent member of the state legislative committee. Um, he has made comments along these same lines. So suddenly he's decided to convert to Islam and leave the party. Which Surprise! Is, right, which is kind of striking. So he himself has only said that the decision was a, a private matter um, and refused to comment to the press any further. But here's the cool thing that I think is really fascinating. So according to German media, Wagner had actually been doing volunteer work in his spare time with Muslim immigrants in his local area, hmm. um, spending time helping them integrate, right? Helping them adjust to their new lives in Germany. He is of Russian descent, so he speaks Russian. Apparently, he was working with Chechen immigrants who are predominantly Muslim, um, and it seems to be that spending time with actual Muslim immigrants seems to have changed his views of Islam pretty dramatically to the point that he, you know, actually decided to convert. And, you know, beyond just the the kind of irony of this guy being part of this party that's like super anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim getting to meet Muslim immigrants and going, oh, hey, turns out they're not that bad. Uh, this is actually part of a broader trend that I kind of want to talk about of people going in who are either like skeptics or actual like outright critics or who just maybe don't have enough information about Islam who begin to get to know Muslims or, you know, reading Muslim texts and kind of changing their views. Um, I'm actually one of those people, if you guys both know, but what? listeners, what? What? You're a Muslim? <laughs> get out. Um, so uh, listeners may not know, but I actually converted to Islam several years ago. And it was kind of along the similar lines. I was not part of a far-right anti-immigrant party. Uh, I was just a college student. Um, but I, you know, after 9-11 and, and in college, I started looking into kind of, you know, what do these terrorists believe, right? I started studying terrorism and al-Qaeda and eventually read the Quran. And when I did that, I realized that this is nothing like what I've heard, either from al-Qaeda, groups like that, or from the media. So it was kind of a very different perspective and change, you know, my views on things. So I just think it's a, kind of a more interesting sociological example of what can happen when people meet each other and actually get to know one another. Well, it turns out that people are humans. <laughs> right. And that when you interact with them, Breaking you news. tend to recognize or learn more about them. You tend to recognize they're nothing like the caricatures that you see, right? So 
In social science, the idea here is called the contact hypothesis, that when you meet someone from a group that's been demonized or that you've seen as an other, your level of tolerance for them after sustained interactions that allow you to understand them as people starts to go up. We've seen this most notably in the U.S. in the uh, gay marriage debate. Right. When the single biggest predictor, according to some studies, of whether somebody would support marriage equality was whether or not they knew a gay person. And that personal, personal experience with another human really gives you a sense that they should have equal rights. I mean, in the hopeful sense, this is what you're going to see more and more in Europe, that initially there's a wave of nativism because people don't like this sense of others invading what they perceive as their territory. But the more time they spend in real interactions, not just like you know, ordering food at a restaurant or seeing somebody sweeping things, doing service jobs for you, but but actual human things that humanizes them. I actually have a question for both of you because you've, you've talked about your religion on, on the podcast before and, and how you're worried about how you might be seen because of it or, or how people might react to it. Have you noticed kind of your own contact hypothesis issues, whether it be based on your religion or or, or maybe you saw someone who that you know is gay that and people around them, their opinions change? Like, I guess someone like, have you seen this in your own daily lives? So- I think it's interesting. I love the idea of the contact hypothesis, right? And and I know I've you know I've read kind of some of the studies more deeply, and some of it is there have to be certain circumstances, right? It has to be like the right circumstances. If there's like a huge power differential between the two groups, it might not actually produce kind of the more tolerant outcome that we're looking for. Um, but another phenomenon that I find is the I don't know what it's called technically, but the you're one of the good ones kind of phenomenon, which is oh I didn't mean you, right? Like Oh no, I mean, yeah, all Muslims are terrorists. Oh, honey, I didn't not you. Obviously, you're you're not. And so I think part of the problem is, you know, even when you have this contact in a direct way, it's still really hard to break kind of broader stereotypes, especially when it comes to security and when it comes to issues like terrorism that, like we said earlier, have been hyped so huge that it's really hard to separate that out from reality. Well, the the thing in the European context and the context of Islam in general that makes it more complicated is that the Islamophobia overlaps with racism, and it's yeah. difficult to disentangle those two things. Right. Right. So when you say, I mean, you're white, right? right. And so when somebody says that to you— What they mean yeah. is, well, you're white, and so therefore I don't see you as a threat. Exactly. Right. Which and is horrifying. In the context of Europe, it's not simple, right? You're not going to automatically, because people meet more white converts, going to change their minds about immigration in general. It's— it's a very complicated problem and one that intersects a lot of different prejudices and biases. What I think is interesting is going back, you're totally right, going back to the AFD in particular, right, their big fear, like their entire kind of fear-mongering platform is these Muslim immigrants will change our culture. And the fact that they're kind of right, right, like these Muslim immigrants changed the perspective of one of their most prominent members— and said, oh, actually, it turns out they're not that bad. They're right. I don't think that's what they meant, but it is actually changing the culture in ways that they probably don't like because they, you know, they lost one, right? Like there's a there's a white Christian man who's now a Muslim. But in a broader sense, like that's a good thing in my book, like changing the culture to be more tolerant and more accepting and more diverse. 
that's a good kind of change. And that's the kind of change they're scared of and they don't want, which is why I think the story is so fascinating. I, I took a quick look just at the the election sort of breakdown. Um, and what I found interesting is where the AFD did really well was in the Northeast, which is, you know, where, where a lot of the immigrants come to. It's where Berlin is. It's, again, a border. So I also think that there's a point here about religion more broadly, right, which is that it's very easy and you see this most notably in the form of the so-called new atheists like Bill Maher and the late Christopher Hitchens to take a particular vision of a religion and and it to be the scary one and say that that is the essential and true nature of that religion. And that's what these European parties do in effect, right? They say not only are these people culturally alien, but their religion is dangerous intrinsically. It is scarier than Christianity. This is obviously not true, right? Religions are polyvocal. There's multiple different ways to interpret the texts. It's just not that easy. And and in my own experience, I've been Jewish my whole life, but I've gone in and out of different periods of study of different Jewish texts and, and have come really strongly to believe that the orthodox and hardline conservative visions of Judaism that you see in some people are just not the correct one. There is no correct one. There are multiple different interpretations. And there's no one that's more authentically Jewish than any other one. And that's true for Islam. I think that's true for Christianity, that there's just lots of different ways to think about it. And so contact with these people really does help dispel the idea that there is this specific, evil, stylized Islam. And I think that's part of what this guy's experience illustrates. Right. Like you said you know, earlier, when you meet people, you learn that they're people, right? Like people have fluid ideas. They don't have one fixed kind of view and people are humans and they just want to live their lives and they have different ideas and sometimes they disagree with themselves from day to day. So, you know, I don't know, get out there and meet some folks. Um, Okay, we'll uh, leave it there for this week. Uh, I want to thank you, Alex, for being kind enough to join us again today. Sure. I also want to thank Bird Pinkerton, who is our producer this week while Jillian Weinberger gets ready for her big trip to South Korea to cover the Olympics. Uh, Also, thanks to our engineer, Peter Leonard, and our social media manager, Julie Bogan. If you like our show, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Rating and reviewing is seriously one of the best ways you can help us spread the word about our show. So go on there, rate and review, say you love us, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.